my shoes and out the door. Five, I'm alive, six, seven, eight, feeling great. Hello, BYWG Tribe. Here is a quick peek at our supplement product and book of the month for February 2020. At the end of the podcast, I will spend a few minutes going into further detail, so we encourage you to listen to the end. The supplement of the month for February 2020 is Vitamin D3 Boost. This is our newest advanced formulation, combining all the benefits of Vitamin D3, Vitamin K2, Magnesium, and MCT oil. The 10% discount code for the entire month is, and it's all lowercase, VITD10. The product of the month for February is Juve, Red Light Therapy Devices. I personally own the Juve Mini and Juve Go and use them both daily. The book of the month for February is Cancer and the New Biology of Water by Dr. Tom Cowan. Hands down, my personal favorite book of 2019. Keep in mind, all the links, discount codes, and special offers for the product, supplement, and book will be listed in the show notes on iTunes, post on social media, and our weekly newsletter, and on our website at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com at the Listen Now tab. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. This is Dr. Wanda Lee, and on behalf of my two partners, Dr. Michael and Dr. Noah, I have the distinct pleasure of making a very special announcement today on behalf of our sister company, Beyond Your Wildest Genes Academy. We have a new program to launch, and this one is just for you, ladies. It is getting to goddess. It's your turn. We know that you're looking for ways to retain youth and vitality, to get energy and feminine power, and to build health for you and your family. You have an inner goddess. Have you seen her lately? She knows how to care for herself so she can take care of others. She has time and balance in her days, weeks, months, and years. Your inner goddess nourishes herself and those she loves, both inside and out. And your inner goddess creates the relationships and the space in her life to bring her dreams, her talents, and her passions to others. Your inner goddess is waiting, and we're here to help you uncover her. It's time to wake up your inner goddess, and our four-week online program combines proven information, science, and simple, effective strategies to build your energy, regain your balance, and find your purpose. It's time for you, so let us help. For more information, go to our website, beyondyourwildestgenes.com. Click on the Beyond Your Wildest Genes Academy link and find Getting to Goddess. Or you can get there directly at www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com backslash getting dash to dash goddess. We hope you enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed making this program. We have poured our hearts and souls into this course, and we can't wait for you to benefit from it. So thank you again for being part of our Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast tribe, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast release. So hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast for this week. I am Dr. Wandalee McPhee, and I'm hosting this episode today with my guest, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry is a renowned cardiologist, a New York Times bestselling author, and a medical researcher. During his 40-year career in medicine, he's performed over 10,000 heart surgeries, and developed life-saving medical technology. In 2008, he wrote a book called Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution and revealed his new career shift, helping patients heal, heal themselves, and avoiding surgery through diet. And this past April, his second book, The Plant Paradox, hit the bookstores and is now a New York Times bestseller. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about that book today, find out a little bit more about Dr. Gundry and his research and his practice. He practices medicine at the Center for Restorative Medicine and International Health Heart and Lung Institute in Palm Springs and in Santa Barbara, California. And of course, we will include all of his contact information in the show notes. So don't uh, worry about getting those contact pieces and websites and YouTube channels and LinkedIn links <laughs> and all of that. We'll do that at the end. So I am really excited to do this. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion today. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Gundry. Well, I really appreciate the invite. So I know I touched very briefly and quickly on your very impressive history in this little bio, but let's start by letting our listeners find out a little bit more about you and how you ended up going from performing heart surgery to writing <laughs> a book. <laughs> it seems like a large leap. Well, um, going back into the dark ages, uh, in, uh, I had an undergraduate experience at Yale University where I actually got to design my own major, and um, my major was in human evolutionary biology. And my thesis, which I had to defend, was you could take a great ape, manipulate its environment, and manipulate its food supply, and predict that you would arrive at a human. And I actually successfully defended my thesis. And then I handed it off to my parents for safekeeping and went to medical school, um, became actually a very famous heart surgeon, chairman and professor at Loma Linda University, uh, invented a bunch of medical devices that bear my name that are the most widely used devices to protect the heart during heart surgery. I and my partner, Leonard Bailey, did all the baby heart transplants that people may remember. And then in uh, about 15, 16 years ago, I was confronted with a 48-year-old man from Miami, Florida, who I, I call Big Ed in both of my books, who uh, was quite obese and had inoperable coronary artery disease. His blood vessels were so clogged up that you couldn't put stents in them, you couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to sew the bypasses to. And Big Ed, like many people in his state, uh, went around to famous medical centers looking for basically someone dumb enough to operate on him. And Big Ed had been doing this for about six months when he came to me at Loma Linda uh, because I'm famous for being dumb enough to operate on people that nobody else wants to. So I looked at the angiogram, the movie of Big Ed's coronary arteries that he, he had had done six months before. And I said, you know, Big Ed, um, I don't turn many people down, but I, got, I agree with everybody else who's seen you that there's nothing that we can do for you. And he says, well, yeah, I know. Everybody said that. But let me tell you what I've been up to. I've been on a diet. And I've lost 45 pounds in six months. Now, this was a man who weighed 265 pounds sitting across from me, uh, there by his name, Big Ed. And he says, I went to a health food store and I've been taking all these supplements. And he literally has a shopping bag full of supplements. And he says, you know, maybe I did something in my body with all this. And so I'm looking at Big Ed saying, well, you know, good for you for losing losing weight, but that's not going to clean out your coronary arteries. 
And I know what you did with all the supplements. You made expensive urine. And I actually really believe that. And he said, well, you know, come on. I've come all the way across country. What would it hurt to get another angiogram, another movie of my heart? And I sighed and said, ah, okay. So we got a new angiogram. And in six months' time, this guy had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries. They were gone. Now, it was actually quite the most remarkable thing I think I've seen. And not knowing what I know now, I was delighted because there were actually now places to do bypasses. And I happily took him to the operating room the next day and did a five-vessel bypass. And he did fine. So after we're all done, I'm you know, talking to Big Ed, and I go, so tell me about this diet that you did. And he said, well, you know, here's what I did, and here's what involved, and about two sentences into this diet, I said, time out. This is the diet that I wrote, changed an ape into a human, and oh my gosh. And so I actually called up my parents in San Diego and said, uh, do you still have my thesis? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's here in the shrine next to the, you know, eternal flame. And I said, well, send it up to me. Now, why this was so interesting is because I was a big, fat heart surgeon. I was about 70 pounds overweight. I had pre-diabetes. I had migraine headaches. I had arthritis. I had hypertension. And I was running 30 miles a week. I was going to the gym one hour every day. And I was eating a healthy, low-fat, vegetarian diet at Loma Linda. And, you know, I was doing all these right things. And here I was, you know, with all these problems. And so then I said, so, Big Ed, you know, let me look in that bag of supplements. And I start looking through his supplements. And as I mentioned, I'm very famous for protecting hearts. And down in the lab, I was actually using a lot of these supplements intravenously to... Uh, keep hearts alive for 48 hours sitting in a bucket of ice water for heart transplant. And it never occurred to me to swallow these things. So uh, I started myself on my experiment of following my thesis. And my staff noticed the difference right away. And my blood work, I every couple months sent up to the University of California, Berkeley. And lo and behold, all my blood work changed. And so I started putting my patients that I had operated on at Loma Linda on this program. And after about a year of this and seeing that not only did their cholesterol numbers change and their diabetes went away and we threw away their high blood pressure medications, uh, everything changed just by telling them what to eat and sending them to Costco or Trader Joe's to buy a few supplements. So I actually resigned my position at Loma Linda 15 years ago and uh, set up a, a center, uh, initially in Palm Springs, where I basically asked people to play with me as, uh, as, their, as my research project and their research project. And every three months, we'd send blood work off that Medicare or insurance would pay for to various labs around the country. Uh, for some really interesting things that we could monitor. And I'd ask them to change certain foods in their uh, diet, and I'd ask them to take certain supplements. And I started publishing my data. 
And immediately I really saw some interesting trends that resulted in my first book, which you mentioned, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. Now, after that book was published, there were a number of patients who had um, fibromyalgia or autoimmune diseases who um, their fibromyalgia and their autoimmune disease went away by following my program. So I got pretty inundated with autoimmune patients uh, after that book. And in fact, my practice, 50% of my practice is now autoimmune patients. And so we were able to develop, uh, working with a couple of labs, some very intricate tests, looking at inflammatory markers that aren't on available blood tests. And through the years, I've now published on taking away certain plant compounds that are called lectins, and that's L-E-C-T-I-N-S. Some people think I'm saying leptin, which is a fat storage hormone, or lecithin, which is a emollient that we use to make chocolate smooth. Uh, it's lectin. And that got me very interested in these plant compounds. Um, as a way of explaining lectins, lectins are the, one of the major plant defense systems against being eaten. And one of the things that's very hard for either myself or just about anybody to get our arms wrapped around plants is that plants uh, don't like us. They were actually here first long before we or other animals arrived. And plants had it pretty doggone good because no one wanted to eat them. And as strange as it may seem, plants don't want to be eaten. They have a life. And they absolutely don't want their babies eaten, their seeds. So they, when animals arrived, plants had a problem because they couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight. But they were chemists of incredible ability. So they use a protein that's called a lectin to make the animal that eats them or their babies sick or not feel well or be in pain or get anxious. Uh, all sorts of fascinating effects that have been well described and which I describe in my book, The Plant Paradox. And the idea is a smart animal will say, you know, every time I eat this plant or eat these plant seeds or babies, I don't thrive, I don't do well, I don't reproduce well, uh, and I'm not going to eat this plant anymore. The plant wins, the animal wins, everybody's happy. Then humans arrive. Uh, as most of us know, humans are pretty stupid. And so when we eat things that make us depressed or anxious or make us hurt, uh, we keep eating them and take a leave or Advil or Nexium or Prilosec or uh, Prozac, not understanding that the plant is really desperately trying to get our attention to stop what we're doing. And so what I found was when I asked people to take away uh, the major mischievous lectins in their diet, and we can talk about that as we go along, that all of a sudden, these very sophisticated markers of inflammation uh, return to normal. And more importantly, uh, we look at about 20 markers of autoimmune diseases 
And as I published, these markers went away uh, and normalized once we eliminated these lectins. And we've also found that if we reintroduce lectins, uh, either by choice or almost by accident, that these markers will come back up positive. So that, um, after looking at thousands of patients, that uh, prompted me to publish my new book, The Plant Paradox, as a guide to uh, who's your friends and who aren't your friends in the plant world. And that's why it's called The Plant Paradox, uh, because I'm a confirmed plant predator. Uh, I consider myself a veg-aquarian. I eat mostly plants and throw in a little wild uh, shellfish and fish on the weekends. Uh, but there's certain plants that we are not designed to eat. And the book is a guide on what not to eat and why you shouldn't eat those particular plants. So what is a lectin? You said it's a, a plant defense system. Um, and I have the advantage of having read your book, which is something I found quite fascinating. One of the lectins that you mentioned in there has gotten a lot of press, perhaps one of the more famous lectins right now, uh, gluten. Yeah. So lectins um, are proteins that are sometimes called sticky proteins because they're designed to stick to certain carbohydrate molecules. Uh, they're designed to stick to the carbohydrates that line our gut wall, among other things. They're actually designed to stick to carbohydrates that line our joint spaces. And one of the original purposes of lectins were to actually stick to a sugar molecule between the nerve endings of insects and to prevent the nerve transmission in insects. And if you think about it, if an insect can't move, uh, that's a pretty good defense system. And uh, as I talk about in the book, to, uh, to, to a plant, humans are just a giant insect. And the things that lectins do is, uh, among other things, break through the wall of our gut by flipping a switch on our gut cell lining that opens, if you will, the floodgates. And people have heard of leaky gut. And really one of the major causes of leaky gut is the fact that lectins are capable of doing this. Now you mentioned gluten. Gluten is absolutely a lectin, but it's interesting, it's a fairly minor lectin in, in, compared to some of the other more nasty lectins. And it actually explains why there are many cultures where gluten is perfectly well tolerated. and Gluten in general is in the inner part of the seed called the endosperm, the, the white part of wheat or the white part of oats or the white part of rye. And it's not in the outer part of the seed where, for instance, wheat germ is, where the whole grain is. And in the outer part of the seed is where the plant actually concentrates most of its lectins because this is where the plant comes in contact with its predator. So for instance, there's a really nasty uh, lectin called wheat germ agglutinin. And as it may imply, it's in the germ of the wheat. So wheat germ is loaded with it. 
And as I point out in the book, one of the best ways of producing heart disease in an experimental animal is to feed them wheat germ. And it's really good. Uh, the wheat germ agglutinin um, lectin will attach to the walls of blood vessels and incite an inflammatory response. And then, believe it or not, cholesterol comes over and tries to repair things. The other really good way to produce heart disease in a rhesus monkey, which are our cousins, is to give them peanut oil that has a peanut lectin. And lo and behold, they'll get impressive heart disease. Now, what's fascinating is if you take the lectin out of peanut oil and give the lectin-free peanut oil to the rhesus monkeys, they will not get heart disease, proving that it was actually the lectin that caused it. And so peanuts are actually one of the worst lectin-containing legumes, beans there are, uh, right along with cashews, believe it or not. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Because in, in a lot of, you know, grain-free diet choices, you know, a lot of times people seek their protein sources through nuts. Um, not always peanuts, but certainly cashews, almonds, things like that are seen to be safer options, but clearly not from a lectin perspective. Right. So a cashew is not a nut, and people need to realize that there are two nuts that aren't nuts. Cashews and peanuts are actually beans. They're part of the legume family. And they're actually not nuts that we have ever been exposed to. They're American nut, um, American beans. And none of us were ever exposed to an American plant until 500 years ago when Columbus started trade. And all of us are actually not from America. We're from Europe, Asia, or Africa. So none of our ancestors ever encountered a lectin from an American plant until very recently. And it's interesting, some of our most beloved foods are actually American lectin-containing plants. So, for instance, peanuts and cashews, the nightshade family, potatoes, eggplant, peppers, goji berries, and the all-time favorite, tomatoes. It turns out the lectins are primarily concentrated in the peels and the seeds of these plants. And traditionally, cultures have always peeled and de-seeded their tomatoes and peppers uh, before using them in sauces or using them in, uh, in eating. Uh, and that practice has virtually disappeared. The other mischief makers that are American are actually corn, quinoa, chia seeds, sunflower seeds, and pumpkin seeds. These all have high lectin levels. And quite frankly, I think they should be avoided most, uh, most of the time. Uh, there are other grains than beans that we only started encountering about 10,000 years ago when we made the switch to agriculture. Now, we're not equipped evolutionary uh, to handle the lectins in grains or beans. In fact, there's so many lectins in beans that three raw kidney beans or three raw black beans 
can actually cause bloody diarrhea or even produce clotting of the blood. Uh, for your listeners, uh, most people have heard of the poison ricin, that white powder that's used in espionage. Ricin is the lectin of the castor bean, which is actually incredibly common in Southern California and in the Americas. And few molecules of ricin will actually kill you within minutes by coagulating your blood. So my, my point is plants uh, really don't like us. And they, they, they arm their babies uh, for chemical warfare with their predators. And we just have to be one of their predators. Absolutely. I remember learning even 25 years ago in school in, you know, some of the pharmacology pieces of my program as a chiropractor around nightshade vegetables, you know, how critical those were for people with arthritis and inflammatory autoimmune conditions. And what you're saying really explains they knew it, it made a problem. They didn't really know why. Um, right. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that, that's that's one of the big, uh, you know, people knew this. Uh, you know, the Italians actually refused to eat tomatoes for 200 years uh, after Columbus brought them back. I mean, their native son, because uh, they knew actually how deadly they were. And uh, to this day, I, I actually go and study in Italy extensively. The, the chefs in Italy know you actually have to peel and de-seed tomatoes. And just kind of an interesting highlight, the Roma tomato was hybridized by the Italians to have the most pulp to skin to seed ratio so that they could just uh, throw these Roma tomatoes in boiling water for 30 seconds, take them out, cut them in half, the peel would come right off, and then they'd squeeze the seeds out and throw it into the sauce pot. And uh, it's, it's fascinating, you know, they knew that the peel and the seeds were the troublemakers. And uh, my interesting story that I love to tell, my, uh, my mother's mother was French, and she taught my mother to always peel and de-seed tomatoes before she served them, even sliced tomatoes. And it wasn't until I went to Yale that I had my first sliced tomato that had peels and seeds, and I thought it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen because I'd never been exposed to it. Wow. Well, and that kind of brings us to another question that, that I had in my mind in reading through. Obviously, evolution has continued in the American and, and Canadian farming practices. And we have, you know, GMO plant productions. We have changes in fertilizers and bug killers and all kinds of things that have perhaps changed plants um, quicker than we've been able to adapt. Do you have any thoughts for our audience around GMO plants or the ever-present glyphosate or Roundup that's out there? Yeah, it, it's really a double-edged sword, and I talk a lot about this in in the plant paradox. There, there, there've really been in the last fifty years seven deadly disruptors that have really changed our evolutionary balance with plants and how we interact with them, both from our own genes, but equally as important, if not more important than the microbiome, the bugs that live within us. And so uh, GMOs, the, of course, the original reason for GMOs was to produce a soybean that was tolerant to being killed by 
uh, Roundup, um, Monsanto's glyphosate. And in on the surface, it sounded like a pretty novel, safe idea because the the killing effect of uh, Roundup is it works on this funny-sounding word called the shikimate pathway. And plants use the shikimate pathway to uh, stay alive and produce energy. And um, bacteria also use this shikimate pathway, but mammals don't use this. So Monsanto successfully argued that, don't worry, this thing is harmless to humans because it doesn't interfere with this pathway. And that's actually how it got approved. Now, the problem is Monsanto didn't bother to tell anybody that it interferes with bacterial um, bacterial shikimate pathway. And so Roundup is pretty doggone good at wiping out and changing our bacterial population of our microbiome. What they also didn't tell anybody is that they were also inserting lectins into corn and tomatoes that actually increased the lectin content of corn and tomatoes to make them more insulin resistant because the the insects would eat the lectin corn or the lectin tomato and would die off and that would be a natural way without pesticides for causing the problem. But the lectin content of tomatoes and corn increased dramatically far more than was ever present in these two problematic plants in the first place. So every time we have BT corn, which is the GMO corn, which is used everywhere, and the new tomatoes that are pesticide-free, we got to be very, very careful because these are genetically modified plants, and they have more lectins rather than less. Finally, the worst part, I think, is industrialized farming now relies on huge columbines, huge harvesting machines that have to be on a particular field on a particular day for efficiency to harvest. And you can't depend on weather having the crops die and become brittle. So what you now do is you pit, you you take normal soybeans or normal corn and normal wheat, not GMO, and spray it with Roundup to stop, to kill the plant. And then in industrialized farming, you harvest those plants that have been sprayed with Roundup. Now the Roundup, you don't wash it off. So all of our regular wheat, all of our regular soybeans, all of our regular flax seeds, all of our regular corn is then fed to animals. And we know that Roundup ends up in their tissue, this has been well proven, and it's fed to humans in our baked goods, in our cereals, without ever having to tell us that they've used Roundup, because these are not GMO. And it's probably the scariest insidious effect of Roundup uh, on all of us in North America. Absolutely. So, for people who are listening, you've probably spurred all kinds of thoughts about foods that, you know, they've been told their whole life were safe and, and were healthy. So how can someone tell if they're sensitive to these lectins? Or are we all sensitive? 
Well, yeah, I, over the years, I've been blessed and get to know a lot of people who I call my canaries. And I call them canaries because a canary in a coal mine, uh, miners couldn't smell the noxious gases in coal mines, so they would carry canaries down into the mines. And if the canary was singing and flitting around, there was no problem. But if the canary stopped singing uh, and stopped flitting, you ran. So there are a number of people who are incredibly sensitive to lectins. And even a small amount of lectins, I mean, a couple of cherry tomatoes, a few bites of sourdough bread will um, cause an asthma attack or migraines or flare and autoimmune disease. But the vast majority of us, I've come to realize, are sensitive to lectins in one way or another. We may not feel it right away. But the effect may occur 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. And so I'm quite convinced in my own mind, and many others are, that arthritis is caused by lectins. Uh, I'm more and more convinced that much of heart disease is caused by lectins from innocently eating things like peanuts. And the more I take even people who aren't super sensitive to lectins, lectins away from people's diets. I've actually shown regression of markers of heart disease. I've shown regression of arthritis. So people have actually re regrown cartilage in their joints, which I would have never believed had I not seen it happen. And we could compare that with the fact that all these inflammation markers uh, this low-grade inflammation, we're now gone. So the longer that I do this, the longer I'm more interested in the long-term effect of casual lectin eating. Mm -hmm. Yes, it may. It's like a lot of health things. It's it, especially some of those chronic illnesses that people develop over time. It isn't always obvious, and that's the difficult thing. Even in talking to to patients myself about making menu changes is they don't feel that different right away. So right. It, uh, it kind of brings back to, you know, at least getting people focused in on, well, if I feel okay, what, what can I eat to make me even better? What can I do to lose some weight or to build health or, you know, ultimately prevent disease in the long run? So are there certain things that you recommend to your clients? Yeah, actually, I'll tell you an interesting story. A few months ago, um, a, um, an, an author of a very successful vegan book uh, wanted to uh, do a podcast with me. And to her credit, she said, you know, um, your, your book is very intriguing to me and you have vegan options for every one of your meals. And she said, I, I thought it would be more interesting if I put myself on your program uh, for uh, six weeks before we talk, because quite frankly, I credit veganism with, you know, giving me great health. And, you know, I'm going to put you to the test. And she said, this is the wildest thing. She said, I actually feel so much better that following your vegan plan, eliminating some of the lectins that I thought were healthy. And I wouldn't have believed this. I feel lighter. I have less gut issues. And she said, you know, uh, you're right on this. And she said, I'm going to continue to eat this way. So what did we do? 
so grains of all kinds we have no business eating. The 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 uh, the Asians actually learned eight thousand years ago that the hall of brown rice is where the problems are, and the vast majority of Asian cultures go to the trouble of taking the hall off of rice to make it white before they eat it. And people have said, gee, you know, they're so stupid. If we could only get them to eat brown rice, think about how much healthier they'd be. Well, they're actually pretty doggone smart. Uh, the same thing goes with wheat. For 10,000 years, we've been trying to make wheat bread white, and only the poor people got the brown bread. You don't see whole grain croissants. You don't see whole grain baguettes. You don't see whole grain pasta in, in Italy and France until very recently. And that's because they were getting rid of the outer hall of grains where much of the problem is. Beans are another big problem. Uh, I like to you know, get into thoughts about, yes, it's true, a lot of the blue zones eat beans. And while there's nothing intrinsically wrong with a few beans, because my first book, uh, I talked a lot about hormesis, which is that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But there's very good evidence from the literature that the lectins in beans are not killed by heating, that the only way to break the lectin is a pressure cooker. And that even a few lectins in beans will actually cause damage to the intestinal wall. And one of the interesting things about beans is that we know that they promote regularity. But at, one, at least one researcher has shown that the reason they promote regularity is because they actually irritate the wall of the gut. And our body's pretty doggone smart, and we try to get rid of things that irritate the wall of our gut. And that makes us regular. So what I, what I ask people to do is eat like it's 9,999 years ago, right before the dawn of agriculture. So we didn't eat grains. We didn't eat beans. We ate mostly tubers, uh, like yams, like sweet potatoes, like taro root, like yucca. And we ate a lot of leaves. And we actually ate quite a bit of nuts, and absolutely we ate berries and fruits that were only in season. And one of the things we make a mistake, particularly in North America, is we forget that 50 years ago, uh, blueberries would only be ripening this time of year. And there would be a season for blueberries that would last maybe a month, maybe two months. And there wouldn't be blueberries the rest of the year. And same with apples. And so we ate fruit in season, as I talk about in the book, to fatten up for the winter. Okay? And we don't do that anymore. We now have 747s bringing blueberries to Costco in February from Chile. And one of the things I talk about in the book is eating fruit out of season is one of the big disruptors in, that's making us more overweight, more insulin resistant, uh, than, and more diabetic than ever before. I found that piece particularly fascinating. I mean, I'm old enough to remember being in a, a rural community in Canada that when you, you did, you only got blueberries in August. Yeah. Because that's when blueberries come. 
you know, you don't get blueberries in January. And you, you would think someone was crazy to eat blueberries in January unless, you know, they had put them in a freezer bag somewhere and, you know, were able to, to maintain the few to sprinkle on something, but certainly not in the grocery store and, and not in any volume. So that makes a lot of sense as to how we've it, sort of shifted right, the culture. Yeah, these these things just didn't exist. And uh, it's there are obviously some really nice things in blueberries. The polyphenols are fantastic. But, um, for instance, there's a new study that was just published of the uh, Hanza uh, Indians, uh, the natives in Africa, who are one of the few last uh, tribes that are truly um, hunter-gatherers. And the paper followed their microbiome. And their microbiome shifted uh, dramatically by the season. And it did it every year, like on clockwork. And one of the things we're beginning to realize is that the sh shift in the microbiome is actually probably very important for the circadian rhythm that we're supposed to follow in our aging process and the way our brain works. And so this was actually the first proof that the microbiome changes depending on the season. So the, the Hunzas, uh, they have a season, a wet season, where basically they eat a lot of fruit and they eat a lot of uh, baobab uh, tree fruit and they eat a lot of honey. And then in the winter, the dry season, they there is no fruit, there is no honey, um, there's not as much baobab, and they go hunting animals, which are e easier to catch in the dry season because they're at watering holes. And they show that the microbiome totally changes during each season. And one of the things I'm doing in my research now is to try and duplicate that by having people actually re-practice the seasonality of eating. Well, I can't wait to interview you again when that is complete, because that will be a fascinating addition of information for a lot of different cultures. I can already think of a, a bunch of different researchers that we've interviewed on this program who would be anxiously waiting for that kind of information to come out. Um, All right. That'll be fascinating. So we're probably over time because I'm just losing <laughs> track of time having such a good conversation here. So sorry about that. <laughs> that's absolutely no apologies necessary. But is there an example or a final comment or a message or anything you want to leave with our listeners? Um, and of course, for more information, they can always go and get your book and we'll put all the contact information there as well. But anything you want to leave them to think about or to start doing on their own um, as yeah. they move forward? One of the things I say over and over again um, is I firmly believe that the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. And the more you practice that, there are studies that are well done in Spain and in Crete showing that a liter of olive oil per week, now think about that, that's about 12 to 14 tablespoons a day dramatically protects your brain from memory loss, dramatically protects women from breast cancer, and dramatically changes what goes on on the surface of your blood vessels in preventing heart disease. 
And so how do you do that? The only purpose of food is to get olive oil in your mouth. So if you're going to have some eggs for breakfast, make sure you get it from pastured hens, not free-range hens, or omega-3 eggs, and pour olive oil on them. Uh, believe it or not, if you went to Crete, you'd have a bowl brought to you with an inch of olive oil in it with two poached eggs, and they would bring you a spoon, and that would be your breakfast. You would chop up the eggs and have olive oil and egg soup, and I think that's a really good idea. Wow, that sounds like my kind of place. So <laughs> yeah. um, thank you very much, Dr. Gundry, for joining me this week, and, and thanks everyone who's listening and, and joining us this week and, and every week on Beyond Your Wildest Genes podcast. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed taking uh, the time and, and sharing this time with Dr. Gundry. And the recording will be coming um, out just a few weeks from now. It's currently late August. And as of two weeks ago, we passed 500,000 subscribers to the podcast. So we do appreciate every one of you who is listening. And we're heading for a million. So if there's someone that you think of who could use this information for from today or could benefit from hearing some of the secrets that we've shared with Dr. Gundry, please pass it on. It's free as always on iTunes and on our website, uh, www.beyondyourwildestgenes.com. So thank you for sharing our passion and we appreciate you for joining us. We hope to talk to you next week as well. And thanks again, Dr. Gundry. And thanks for having me. Take care. Good. We're clear. So it, ironically, Hello, it's Dr. No, and I'm back. I suspect you loved listening to this week's podcast release. Our book of the month is simply incredible, and in our estimation, a book everyone needs to read. Cancer and the New Biology of Water by author Dr. Thomas Cowan should be on your super short list. Dr. Cowan has been on our podcast twice, wants to talk about Dr. Cowan's garden, his nutrient-dense, nutrient-diverse vessel powders, and most recently, on November 11, 2019, to discuss his newest book. The link to purchase the book will be in our weekly newsletter and on our social media, posted and sent throughout the entire month. Our product of the month is the Juve Red Light Therapy Device. Photobiomodulation has been shown to assist with pain and inflammation release, fitness, training, and muscle recovery, and hormone regulation to highlight a few of its near countless benefits. As I mentioned, I own a Juve Mini and Juve Go and use them every day. My skin has never looked better, and I certainly recover faster from my workouts. On October 8th, 2018, I interviewed the co-owner, Scott Nelson. I highly encourage you to listen and learn more about all the benefits of red light therapy using the Juve. The supplement of the month for February 2020 is Vitamin D3 Boost. It is pretty mainstream now how important vitamin D3 is to your overall health and wellness. What is not mainstream is the nutritional facts that vitamin D3 needs a few other cofactors, vitamins, and minerals to enhance its effectiveness. Recognizing this, we set out to formulate the gold standard for vitamin D3 supplement. Vitamin D3 Boost has the most active form of vitamin D, as well as vitamin K2, magnesium, and a little bit of MCT oil to enhance the absorption of these fat-soluble vitamins. This is truly a world-class vitamin D3 formulation. You can check out the spec sheet and research articles on our website. The 10% discount code for the month of February, and remember, it's Kate sensitive it's V-I-T-D-10. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listen listening, and be awesome and never unawesome.